Hello and welcome to My Faculty Podcast by Walden University, created to provide further professional development and conversation around topics relevant to faculty interests. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Faculty Excellence. Today, Dr. Christy Jenkins, Dr. Heather Ambrose, and Dr. Judy Green will share with us how they and we can affect social change within our respective disciplines. Let's tune in now. Welcome, everyone. Today, I want to talk to you about social change. And social change is a really big deal here at Walden University. And it's kind of who we are. So when we think about our more than 45-year history, we have a lot of different opportunities to make social change because our faculty and our students are from all over the globe. And it's really an opportunity for our students to transform themselves as scholar practitioners and kind of put that uh, knowledge that they've learned into practice out into the universe. So we're hopeful that our students are able to make a difference by addressing whatever challenges they have in their community and in their professional life and in the world as a whole. So when we think about this on a global scale, I started working in underground safe houses for survivors of domestic violence and their families. And I, at that point I had a bachelor's degree. And I thought, well, if I really want to be effective as uh, someone who is, is really pro-social change, I really need to get a master's degree. So what I wanted to do was get a master's degree and then clinically treat domestic violence survivors and their family. And once I did that and, and started practicing, I thought, well, if I'm going to make a bigger, more global social change, I really need to get a PhD and teach other folks how to teach people to be counselors to treat folks affected by interpersonal violence. And so I went ahead and did that. And as I was doing that, I very specifically looked for an online university so that I would be able to teach students around the globe how to treat folks um, who are suffering from domestic violence and sexual abuse and even the perpetrators of, of those two pieces because I've been working in social service for about 24 years in, in that realm that has really become my passion to help with social change. And so once I started teaching for Walden and I've been here about 10 years, I really was so excited to teach students all the way uh, to Egypt, to the Bahamas, uh, all over the globe we have students. Um, during one of my last quarters, I had a student who was practicing counseling in Japan and she was on a military base. And so to be able to see how we can teach our students to have such an impact around the globe is really, really important. Walden also has the Global Days of Service, and so that's really an opportunity for the Walden community at large to make an impact in their own neighborhoods. 
Then we also have Scholars of Change, and that's a video contest that allows our students and graduates to share their stories, showing how their Walden degree is helping them to make a positive difference in their lives and the lives of those around them. We also have the Journal of Social Change, and so this is sponsored by Walden University, and they welcome manuscripts from the Walden community and the public that focus on research and social change. And what they wanna see is this research needs to improve the human condition and move people, groups, organizations, cultures, and society towards a more positive future. Now, what I have done, I, I told you a little bit about my education and why that was important to me. I have been working with domestic violence victims for 24 years, but I've only been working specifically with child abuse victims for the past 10. And how that came about was I started working at a children's advocacy center. And for those of you who don't know what a children's advocacy center is, it's really a one-stop shop for investigation and treatment of uh, interpersonal violence for children. So that could be children who witness violence, that could be children who have been physically abused, and it's also for children who have been sexually abused. And so we are accredited through the National Children's Alliance. There's 10 accreditation standards, and one of them is a child-friendly site. And the Children's Advocacy Center is a nonprofit organization, so we have to write a lot of grants, do a lot of fundraisers, ask for donations, because all of our services there are free. And the reason being, just because you've been abused does not mean that you have a mental health diagnosis. And so what happens is some of these folks might go out into the community and go to community mental health, and they might not be able to be seen there if they don't have a mental health diagnosis because they're not billable. And so we get them at our agency and they're able to be seen from 12 to 15 sessions for trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy and what happens is they normalize the process for them that what happened to them is not okay and that they needed to tell somebody and how brave they were for telling someone. We teach them relaxation techniques, coping skills, and at the end they write a trauma narrative. And they write about the first time, the worst time, the last time, a piece of the trauma because you don't want them to relive the entire trauma. And then if they have a supportive, non-offending caregiver, they can share that trauma narrative with them. But if they know that it's counterintuitive to share it, maybe their non-offending caregiver does not believe them or they're not in the house and they're only with a foster parent or, or something like that, then they might not share that. And the reason that this all came about was that the we were finding that children were being interviewed between eight and 11 times on a sexual abuse allegation. So a child makes an outcry at school and the teacher goes and gets the counselor and the counselor goes and gets the nurse and then the nurse gets the principal. And you know, we're four or five people in deep already and we haven't even called law enforcement or children's services taking them to the hospital and so what they really wanted to do is make a one-stop shop where a child could be interviewed 
using a best practice model. Our, our model at our center is beyond the silence and it's fact finding, non-leading, can hold up against the defense attorney. And really it's one person interviewing the child while other members of the team can be watching through a two-way mirror or you can digitally record it and then you can give the recordings to the other parties. How this came about was there was a prosecutor down south named Bud Kramer and um, Bud had brought a boy who had a sexual abuse allegation against his parent into his office and he said well you know why don't you tell me what happened and the little boy looked up at him and he said don't y'all talk to each other? And Bud thought, what an incredible idea. What if we did all talk to each other? What if we didn't have to interview someone 11 times? Because when you tell a story, even if it's the most fantastic thing that, that has happened to you, if you tell a story 11 times, you're going to forget things, you're going to remember things, you're gonna leave things out. And it just, it really just sets it up for a child to be re-traumatized, re-victimized and, for a child to not be believed. And what we find in the research is that less than 5% of children ever make up an abuse allegation. And in my own personal history of treating children, if someone does make something up, it's a symptom of a much larger issue. So there's usually mental health, alcohol and drug abuse, um, a combo of all of those things within the household, and it, it's an outcry to get some help in some other respect. So that is um, the, the overview of the Children's Advocacy Center and why that work is so important. And AAT is really, really important to me. I finished my dissertation on animal-assisted therapy with children, and the results are so phenomenal in regard to the research literature. It is such an incredible adjunct to treatment. We had a, a girl who had been gang raped in a, an alley and had come to treatment. She was suicidal, she dropped out of school, she was on drugs, and she didn't wanna see me or any other clinician at the center. And she started doing some really good work with Nala. Nala would come into the session and she would pet her and she started talking about her feelings. By the end of her sessions, we kept her a little bit longer. I think she was probably 18 sessions because she was going through the court process. And um, by the end of her 18 sessions, she was back in school, she was off of drugs, and she was applying for colleges because she wanted to go to school to be a counselor. Like what had happened with her, she wanted to change lives like that. So when we think about social change, it's, it's so important. All of these things, the, the Children's Advocacy Center, supplying services for free to children who would not otherwise get help, animal-assisted therapy, making a change in someone's life um, in a different capacity. Regular therapy was not going to work with this girl. She was way too traumatized and too victimized and she really needed just someone to sit in it with her. And so the animal is so good at that. The animal has like what we call some core conditions of counseling, that unconditional positive regard, genuineness, you know, that empathic, that Nala doesn't care if, <laughs> you know, you have pimples or you smell or your clothes aren't 
um, the best or what she just wants to be with you. And so we've seen some really incredible impact uh, at our center with Nala. Also, Nala's been there for six years. And so she, you can tell when she's been there a little while, she's like, mm, it's right, I'm ready to go home. So what we're doing is, you know, sometimes with social change, you have to have a backup plan as well. And so we are training my dog, Bob the Beagle, uh, to be our next animal assisted therapy dog. And he is in his fourth class of six. And there's a whole certification process. Uh, you have to make sure that they go to the vet and have all of their shots. And uh, it's just a huge process. And then by the end of it, you have to do a handler certification. So we're going through that process now because that, that um, program is just so incredibly important to us. Speaking of programs, we have a better intervention program. And this was a huge transition for the board at the Family and Child Abuse Prevention Center. So what had happened was I had asked them to start a better intervention program at the agency. And because they had been victim focused for over 45 years, they were not too thrilled about bringing perpetrators on site. And actually through the National Children's Alliance, we're actually not allowed to have perpetrators on site. So we had to have this program after hours, after everyone was gone. But I thought it was incredibly important because if we don't fix the root of the problem, we're going to continue to have victims of abuse. And so for a very long time, what would happen with a batterer is they would send them to anger management. And anger management tends to be six to eight weeks for an hour, hour and a half, maybe two hours. You can miss a session or two. And so you can't really solve say 30 years of domestic violence in six to eight weeks. I don't care if you're Sigmund Freud, you will not be able to solve that. And um, so what we found was, and the research supports, we were building better batterers. So we were teaching them techniques like timeout. So the batterer would get angry with their partner, would um, say, well, you know, my counselor taught me that I need a timeout. And so they would storm off and maybe go to the bar till 4 a.m. and come home and maybe, you know, not put their hands on their partner, but maybe break some stuff in the house and just kind of reinforcing um, the violence. And so we did a lot of research uh, throughout the past 30 some odd years and there were things like the Duluth model and things that really lend itself to saying that a better intervention program is way more than anger management. Betterers do not have a problem managing their anger. They're not usually beating up somebody at work or at school or in the parking lot somewhere, they save it up and take it out at home. And so the Better Intervention Program is really sort of a paradigm shift that um, some of this onus comes from society at large. So when we talk about social change, this is so incredibly important that we look at what are the messages that we're sending to couples, to partners, to men, to females? Um, what does that look like? And, and how can we um, circumnavigate that? And also involving the victim and not being six or eight weeks long, being 26 weeks long, being an entire half year program where you're really helping them to get rid of 
the, the messages and the mentality that keeps that sort of system in place. And so the better intervention program is really important because when you look at research, it says that 1% um, of veterans change on their own. That's one out of 100. Those are not good odds. And so we have been doing this program here for about five years now, and the person running the program has been doing it for about 20 years. Our recidivism rate is uh, less than 10%. And so when you think of one out of 100 or 90 out of 100 making a positive change, it's really important. So 90 out of 100 of our batterers have never reoffended after completion of the program. So that's a huge social change for us. When you look at the middle here uh, of your screen, you see these are photos of me marching on the hill. I have been going with the National Children's Alliance every year in June for the past decade. And it's really important that we talk to legislators about continued funding for child abuse issues and for mental health issues because we need that funding so desperately. That's where some of our grants come from so that we can afford to treat children for free. And so every year we go and talk to them and we've been talking to them so much that we'll come in now and some of um, uh, the senators that we see more often will say, hey, did you hear about this human trafficking grant or have you seen this research? And so it's just so exciting to see folks that really care about social change and, and what they're doing up on the hill. Another thing that I do is I do domestic violence one -on 101 at um, the residencies, pre-practicums, those kind of pieces. And I typically get about 100 students each time I do that. So four times a year, 100 students, 400 students from around the globe come and hear that message. And then a lot of students afterwards ask me for the PowerPoint or different materials. And so I'm able to disseminate that information and then they're able to make changes in their community. And that's just incredibly exciting for me, which also the Walden WOW webinars, which is the, the words of wisdom, those are um, instrumental also with, um, I've done them on child abuse and domestic violence. And that's how we teach our folks in counseling and their supervisors at their sites about these different pieces. Thank you, Dr. Christy Jenkins. Um, this is Dr. Heather Ambrose. I'm with the School of Counseling at Walden University. I'm very excited to be here to talk about the work that I do. Um, I live in Layton, Utah, and I was born and raised about 15 minutes away from where I live now in a town called Ogden, Utah. And um, a lot, uh, I was born and raised, I moved away for 19 years and, and then I came back and a lot changed during the time I was away. But one of the things that really didn't was the way that LGBTQ plus people um, were regarded and treated in my community. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with the acronym, LGBTQ stands for lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. Um, sometimes there are some additional letters that are added on, a QQIA, 
which stands for Queer Questioning Intersex and Asexual. So I, I reduce the alphabet by just saying LGBTQ plus when I speak about this community. But one of the things that happened when I moved back to Utah was I really wanted to get involved in the community in some way. And I, I just happened to find out about a wonderful program called uh, Outreach Resource Center. And um, it was started by a, a couple of women at the Unitarian Church in Ogden. And they recognized that there was a need for a safe space for LGBTQ plus teens to come where they could be themselves, where they could be loved and accepted for who they were, where they could meet friends who were just like them and um, just hang out and, and have a good time. So the, the program had been in existence for about four or five years before I joined in um, 2012. And um, during my time there, we have offered programming on things such as uh, safer sex practices, uh, what healthy relationships look like. And we've also talked a lot about suicide prevention because unfortunately suicide is a big problem in the state of Utah. And many people who die by suicide are part of the LGBTQ plus community. So we wanted to do what we could to make sure that we were um, educating people about signs and symptoms that somebody may be thinking about suicide, what to do if you know someone is um, thinking about suicide or, or threatening suicide, and um, offering resources for people to get help when they needed it. Um, so that, that was a very important part of our program. We also recognized that there were a lot of our kids that were living in poverty. And so one of the things that we started doing was providing a food pantry for them. If they needed food to take home with them, they could certainly do that. And we also provided clothes that they could take to make sure that they had enough to wear, especially in the winter time. Uh, we collected coats and other kinds of things for them to make sure they were protected against the elements. So. Our, in the beginning, our program was open um, two days a week, and we provided dinner for the youth when they came in. Uh, they were also able to not only participate in the educational programming, but also play games, do crafts, um, whatever they wanted to do to socialize with each other, they could. Uh, unfortunately, one of the things that we experienced was after marriage equality happened in 2015, a lot of the big donors that we had that were funding our program decided that um, because the LGBTQ plus population now had equal rights in terms of marriage, that there wasn't really anything more that needed to be done for this community. And um, one of the things that we found was that is absolutely not true, especially when it comes to the trans community. There's been a lot of um, 
legislation proposed and enforced both at the national and uh, various local levels around the country aimed at discriminating against the trans community. So there's still a lot of work that we really need to do. Um, and unfortunately, there have been several trans women of color across the United States, particularly in the Dallas, Texas area, that have been killed um, several within the past few months of this year alone. So there's a lot more that we need to do to be sure that we're taking care of our youth. Um, so what, when our funding dried up, one of the things that we decided to do was join forces with another organization in town called Ogden Pride. And they, they had been a, a fairly new organization that was aimed at putting on a yearly pride festival in the city of Ogden, um, which was no small feat. Um, and so we just, they had wanted to do youth programming and they saw this as a, as a good way for us to join forces and, and so did we. So now we are known as Youth Outreach, a program of Ogden Pride. And um, so in addition to planning the yearly Pride Festival that takes place in Ogden, we continue to do programming for the youth in our community. Um, instead of being open two days a week, we are now uh, just open for two days out of the month because we are a volunteer organization and sometimes it's difficult to um, meet all the, all the needs of the community, but we do the, the best that we can. So we're open two days a month for the youth. And we are also now starting a program where we are looking at providing services for the trans community. Um, and we really hope to be able to provide more services in the future. We're currently raising money for our own Pride Center in Ogden. The only center, Pride Center that exists in the state of Utah is in Salt Lake City. So we really want to be sure that we have something local for people in the northern Utah area. Once we have our center, we'll be able to offer a lot more programming opportunities for the larger LGBTQ plus population. Uh, but right now our focus is mainly on the youth, and as I mentioned, the trans community. We try to give our youth a fun activity every month. So we'll do things like go bowling, uh, have a pizza party, have a coffee night, have a movie night, um, some of those things to continue to give kids the opportunity to be in a safe space where they're able to interact with each other um, and, and make new friends along the way. One of the things we also do is we continue to try to help our homeless youth population, which unfortunately we have a pretty high homeless youth population in Utah in large part because a lot of the youth when they come out as LGBTQ plus are disowned by their family and put out on the street. So fortunately for us, we now have a couple of shelters. There is one um, locally in Ogden that serves the needs of LGBTQ plus youth who are under the age of 18. 
We also are in the process of putting together hygiene kits for those that are living on the street so that they are able to um, take care of themselves, especially as the winter months are fast approaching here. So that's a little bit about what we do and kind of our vision for the future in terms of serving the needs of the larger LGBTQ community in Ogden. We want to thank you for listening in to today's podcast and tuning in to this brief commercial. We want to remind you to visit the CFE website for additional faculty professional development opportunities, such as webinars, coaching, and self-paced modules. Let's get back to the show. Um, I'm Dr. Judy Green, and I, um, I've been with Walden since 2008. I'm also in the School of Counseling um, with uh, Heather and Christy. Um, a little bit about my background. I was in 30 years in the public schools in Ohio as a teacher and then a school counselor. And then I worked on my PhD um, to pick up my mental health uh, counseling license. And what I didn't realize was that the PhD would open many doors for me, one of which was to become a counselor educator. Um, so I did that part-time in Ohio and then went full-time and I realized what an impact that could make when I could um, teach others to, who are interested in becoming school counselors or mental health counselors and you know, spread that reach um, through my students. Um, it was in uh, 2008 when my husband decided, and we both did, that we would retire to coastal North Carolina but I wasn't ready to give up counselor ed. And I, that was when I found Walden. Coincidentally, it was the first year that I ever made a trip to Africa. It was intended to be a one-time trip. I was gonna see the uh, beautiful uh, animals, Mount Kilimanjaro, and um, all that I'd heard about from the priests who had come to study at my small university in Ohio. So it was the first time I was able to take a trip like that. Um, and then when I did, I had no idea that it would, would change my life. Um, and what happened was I began to ask questions and um, I knew that there was a lot of poverty and hunger in Africa, but I didn't know how pervasive it was or how, how deep it was. And so um, as I visited schools, hospitals, um, uh, and you know, along with the safari, um, orphanages. Um, I just was just really interested in like, well, what's going on over here? And um, I assumed incorrectly that they had counseling as a profession because the few priests that I had worked with in Ohio had taken a master's degree in counseling. My assumptions were wrong. I got there and found that counseling is not a profession yet and still not after 10 years but I visited a small university there and um, the president of the university said, well, could you come and, and set up a counseling program for us? Um, he certainly didn't know what he was asking me, but I, so I, you know, I came home feeling really discouraged and wondering how could I possibly help? How could I make an impact, you know, and for these people who were so hungry for knowledge? And it just hap so happened that at that same time, um, NBCC, 
the National Board of Certified Counselors had just written a new program called the Mental Health Facilitators uh, Program Training, um, where, which is a 30-hour curriculum written and owned by NBCC, um, where they train master trainers to go all around the globe and into our remote areas in our country, um, some Indian reservations, some very small, or I shouldn't say small, some pockets of poverty in West Virginia where people don't have access to mental health um, services and so forth, um, to, to take this training and give it to um, people, anyone who wants it, who are working with with um, others. So in Tanzania, what I do is go over for three weeks in the summer, because that's the best time for, for them to have me there. Um, I work with teachers, headmasters, discipline masters, um, nurses, priests, other clergy, um, anyone really who, who's interested in mental health. The, one of the things that um, that I found when I got there, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. It's, the curriculum is all set up and I just deliver it. Um, it takes one whole day for us when we begin the training to explain and teach people over there what mental health is, because they really have had no idea. Um, so far, we've trained over 300 people and you know, the idea is then, of course, that they will take their skills and go out and help others through their own work. Um, the training provides tools to help people identify mental health needs, um, make referrals, work with and support anyone in need of mental health care. Um, we spend a lot of time on, you know, what is anxiety, what is stress, uh, what is good stress, bad stress, and so forth, and depression. Over there, there's uh, many people still believe, for example, that depression is um, is caused by someone being possessed uh, by evil spirits. So, in it, so slowly, slowly, we're we're able to teach them, you know, what what is, you know, what is really going on with the person who's suffering from depression. Um, we teach uh, suicide prevention, um, trauma response, consultation consultation strategies and so forth. So anything really that um, beginning mental health counseling students um, are learning about, like just, you know, good eye contact, uh, listening, um, you know, how to respond to people and so forth. That's what we teach in the 30-hour curriculum. Um, interestingly, I, I think, um, I know that the program's making a difference because I hear back from the the people we've trained and they say, oh no, I've been doing it all wrong. You know, when, when a child is acting up, we just, we just, um, we use the stick, they call them. So they still use corporal punishment over there. So now, you know, slowly again, we're educating them that, you know, these kids have feelings and if you can get them to, you know, think about what they're doing and so forth. So, um, talking about feelings over there, again, that took an, another several hours because they explained to me that they don't talk about feelings. When you ask someone how they feel, they say, I'm well or I'm sick. So teaching the whole idea of you know emotional uh, reaction, it takes time. So that's what I do with the mental health facilitator training. 
Um, and again, we, we also do research about, you know, how, how is it being received, um, how we're using it, you know, and they send it back to me and I keep in touch with many, many of the people who've been trained. So I, I love being able to do that. And thankfully, because of my work at Walden, I'm able to take my classes with me when I go. And, um, and that's fascinating to them too. They're very, you know, they can't believe that, you know, first of all, we have the technology and all of that to, to, to be able to do it. But I'm just thankful that Walden, my work here allows me to, you know, to do what I'm doing and um, contribute to social change in a positive way on the other side of the world. Uh, I work with my students and tell them, you know, we can't, I don't, you can't expect to move mountains when you're a graduate student. Um, and we all want to make a, a positive difference wherever we find ourselves. And um, I, I liken it to throwing a pebble in a pond and, you know, we make ripples. We don't ever know how far out we're going, you know, we will reach um, with the work that we're doing. So some of the things I do after my teaching, um, is done after two weeks over there in Tanzania. I visit orphanages, schools for children with special needs. Um, the local dispensaries are important because each village has a dispensary where the people come for any of their needs, whether it's, you know, it could be a broken arm, could be to deliver a baby. Um, a lot, and many times it's because the person is highly anxious or depressed but of it, until we were giving the trainings, the, the um, nurses at the dispensaries didn't know really what they were looking at. So that's been a huge help over there. There's one hospital in the area that I go to. It's about a 500 square mile area. They have one uh, psychiatric wing, um, one retired psychiatrist who works there. So um, they have very, very few psychotropic meds, you know, to give out. So it's just it's just an ongoing project. And the, the elementary schools, I visit those. St. Pamakius is a big um, push for me right now. It's a, the only secondary school in the entire country where children who are deaf, blind, or albino can go for their secondary education. They are provided um, education through the seventh and eighth grade. Um, but after that, they're, they can't go to the other, you know, to go on. And many of them um, have the cognitive ability to go on eventually to university and be able to support themselves. So right now, the school is operating with uh, just 70 kids. Um, and, you know, they have plans of finishing it and, and housing 500. It's a boarding school. So that's what I do now is just try to, you know, raise awareness like Christy and Heather. You know, there's so many things that we can involve ourselves in um, all around the world. So um, I'm just thankful that I found this and I love being able to help. And um, that's what I do. Okay, so now it's time for you to think about what you might want to do in your quest for social change. And so what I like to ask people is, what is their first philanthropic memory that you have? For me, what mine is, is I 
have a memory of my father writing a check to the Salvation Army every Christmas. And at the time, I was little, so I thought it seemed like a ton of money, and I can't remember what it was. But I remember that he was very closed mouth about it. He was like what you would consider an anonymous donor. He did not want any fanfare about it. He did not want to talk about it. And finally, one year, my mom told me that when they were newly married and um, when my parents got married, my mom was 15, my dad was 17, but it was 19, let me think of this, 1948 or 49. And so it was a very long time ago. And um, something had happened where my dad's job was and they had closed down and so my dad was digging ditches for a dollar an hour and you know trying to feed himself and his wife and his children and um way before i ever came along and um the Salvation Army had dropped off a box for Christmas with um, food and different pieces in it. And he never forgot that. And so we're thinking, you know, I was coming up in the 80s and the 90s. So here it is 40 years later and he's still writing them a significant check every year. Um, I didn't know really what that meant. You know, what does it look like to volunteer for an organization or um, to figure out what social changes and how I could have any part of it? I knew what it looked like to donate money to, to give to folks who were doing the good work, but it wasn't until my 20s that I found the domestic violence safe houses and and how I could really be a part of that. So I want you to think about um, what you would want to do right now. And does it have any effect on your past history? So if you say that you grew up and you were homeless at periods of time, because someone lost their job or because of a divorce or domestic violence or something, would you want to work with the homeless population? Is that something that you saw growing up or that, that something has shaped you in that direction? And you really need to find your passion. What is that? Tap into that desire. How can I help others? There's conservation, there's um, food insecurity, there's adoption of pets, there's save the bees, um, of course, interpersonal violence, sick children, LGBTQ+, there's lots of different things on this page just to get you thinking about what would fall in line with your desire, what would fall in line with your past history. Maybe you have seen something at some time and you thought, there's injustice in this world and I want to help out. Or maybe it truly comes from you yourself having some sort of issue along the way. And think about finding a local resource to try it out. So if you did want to really be pro adopt, don't shop, and you really wanted for folks to stop going to breeders and you wanted them to adopt the animals that we already have that already need homes, you could go to your local animal shelter and ask them how you volunteer. And so when we think about getting from that point um, of, wow, I'd really love to do this to the point where you're actually doing it, it can take 
a lot of different steps. And so in counseling, we call it backwards planning. So it's a solution focused technique in counseling, where if I want to actually be there helping getting dogs adapted, how many steps before that do I need to get there? So I would have to obviously make a call and ask if they're taking volunteers. And if they say, yes, we'd, we'd love to have you volunteer, what does that entail? Does that fit into my schedule? Do I have to take any classes to learn how to work there? Is there a training program? So there's a lot of steps to get you where you wanna go. So you definitely just kind of want to reach out and see. And if at first you don't succeed, <laughs> try, try again, because that shelter, maybe they have all the volunteers that they need, or maybe they don't accept volunteers ever. It's only paid staff. Well, they're probably not the only shelter in town or in a 60 mile radius. So start looking around your town if you can't find exactly what you want. Or um, for some folks who are in rural areas, even looking on the internet of how to volunteer. Sometimes you can volunteer um, to be a blogger or to do chats, you know, for folks that are maybe um, feeling down or maybe suicidal or those kind of things. So there's lots of different ways that you could find your passion, reach out and help. And it really, um, really depends on what you want to do and where you live and what the resources are. But there's plenty of work that needs to be done in society today. And so if you can't necessarily do your first choice, I'd make a list of a few different choices just to get you started out. Because what's so great about social change is that we wanna make a difference. And one of the, the main differences that we make is within ourselves and just feeling that impact. And um, Judy had come, and, and what Judy does is so incredibly fantastic, but I do social change in a different area. It doesn't mean that I'm not impacted by what I hear from other folks. And so when Judy came back one time and said they had two stuffed animals in the orphanage and they were passing them to each other so that they could just feel the fuzziness of their little ears, and then they would pass it on to the next kid. There was a hundred children in this orphanage. And so Judy and I got together and how can we get uh, stuffed animals for all the kids so that they could all each have one. And so we sent over a hundred plus uh, Beanie Babies on one of her trips. And she video recorded these children getting their very own stuffed animal. I mean, it was stunning. I showed it to my children who have far too many stuffed animals. And I said, look, when you have nothing, this is what this looks like. I mean, they were jumping off their bunk beds and, you know, just smiling from ear to ear and so excited and, and just squeezing these stuffed animals. And it's something so simple as sending over a box of stuffed animals. Because I think for some folks, they think, how do I fit this into my life? My life is already too busy. I have too much going on. How can I do this? I think, wow, you know, how, how cool. Kids who don't have families, don't have worldly goods, finally got to feel good, at least for a little while. And so think about what you would want to do, where you think you could do it, 
reach out to those resources. And definitely you can always reach out to myself, Dr. Heather, Dr. Judy. We will have our email addresses right up right now. So if you need any sort of help, please reach out to us and we would love to be able to be a resource for you and making positive social change. Thanks for listening to our Center for Faculty Excellence, My Faculty Podcasts. Until next time.